So today we begin a sermon series that I've called An Impolite Faith. What I want you to know about it is that I don't intend a faith that's rude to God, but a faith that our culture will certainly see as rude. It's okay, Mark. Man, it happens all the time. Just think if that had been Jesus calling, saying, David, don't do it. And you hung up on him. Last year, I went to a conference called Real Ideas Conference. I'll be going to that conference again in a couple of weeks. And I met a man there named Matthew Hartsfield. And he wrote a little book called Shouting at Jesus. It's a very good book. And it's the basis of this sermon series that we're going to undertake. I want to read something to you that he wrote in this book that got me to thinking. He writes, Most Christians maintain a very polite faith. We tend to cultivate a controlled and managed relationship with Jesus. We treat Jesus politely and we expect the same from Him. We are going to stay in our place, and we expect Jesus to stay in His place. We don't expect too much from Jesus, and we hope Jesus doesn't expect too much from us. We sing safe songs, pray safe prayers, and preach safe sermons. Our relationship with God is simply safe and polite. With the things that have been happening to Christians around the world. Because they live in open faith and an impolite faith. It seemed that maybe we should think about that. And today we begin with hearing a story about how King David humiliated himself. Because he was overcome with joy at God. A reading from 2 Samuel chapter 6 beginning with verse 6. This is a story of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen shook it. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him there because he reached out his hand to the ark. And he died there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord had burst forth with an outburst upon Uzzah. So that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, How can the ark of the Lord come into my care? So David was unwilling to take the ark of the Lord into his care in the city of David. Instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. It was told King David... The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of the Lord. 
So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up, brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the offerings of well-being, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And distributed food among all the people and the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to each a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people went back to their homes. David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today. uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants' maids as any vulgar fellow might shamelessly uncover himself. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me in place of your father and all his household to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord that I danced before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be a base in my eyes. But by the maids of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The Ark of the Covenant was that thing that God had Moses make to store the covenant in. The stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments from atop the mountain. And the Ark had two gold cherubim on top of it. And they did this toward one another. And the Israelites thought and believed and were told even that God's glory dwelt between the two cherubim. That when God came to be present with the people in the tent of meeting, what they called a tabernacle that God dwelt between those cherubim, and that that was where Moses saw God face to face. It was a sign of God's presence. And David, because he had been victorious in battle, was able to bring the ark home to its proper place. But as you heard, he became scared. And he left it. But when he heard that it hadn't cursed that household, he decided to go and get it. And that's where our story begins. You might have heard David say that he was resolving to be more contemptible. Yeah, I will be even more contemptible, he said in verse 22 of what I read to you. 
I will be even more contemptible, not less. Did you catch that, church? When she complained about David up there twirling in his ephod, he said, I'll be more contemptible than that for God. Contemptible is a translation that doesn't quite get there. The King James Version, I believe, translates the word right when it says vile. That David said, I will be even more vile than this. We might not like to hear that from a story about King David, because after all, we know that King David is a man that God said was after his own heart. David is a hero to us. Sometimes a cautionary tale, but most of the time a tale of what God can do through a willing heart. You might remember David saying in the King James, and yet I will be more vile than thus. My Webster's Dictionary from 1987 defines vile as morally despicable, of little worth or account, disgustingly or utterly bad. Wow. David was saying, I will be even more disgusting than this for God. Michael was upset with him. The term that appears here for dance doesn't appear anywhere else in Scripture. And it really really means that he was spinning like kids spin today. Have y'all seen them do those spinning dances that they do? No, I'm not going to do it for you. I just did a little bit. It was embarrassing enough. I'm not doing it again. But that's the deal. And, and David had on an ephod, which would have looked a lot like this, except it would have been linen and tighter to his skin. And so when he spun, y'all know what happened, right? He had a Marilyn Monroe moment. And that thing went out wide, and he didn't have anything on, under it because it was his undergarment. His wife got mad at him. Y'all can imagine, right? Y'all can imagine that. I mean, imagine most of you women, if your husband did that, you would just walk away and never come home, right? David's performance of exuberant joy before God ticked her off, to say the least. She was angry, and she spoke to him very sarcastically about it. Boy, the king of Israel honored himself today, didn't he? And it was a challenge to David for having lived out his faith. In that moment when he was just filled with so much joy that he couldn't contain it, all he could do was dance before God. And his wife took exception to it. Because she thought that he had embarrassed himself. And he had embarrassed her. Her scorn was rooted in the idea that David had embarrassed himself. And because he had embarrassed himself, he had embarrassed the whole house of David, which included her, his first wife. He was not behaving as a king should have behaved, she thought. He had made himself contemptible and vile. I'm forced to wonder what it would mean for me to have such a public display of my faith, to have faith that was completely unworried about what people would think of me. I wonder, I wonder what that kind of faith could do. If suddenly I became completely unencumbered by what others thought of me. 
that my faith would make me vile to them. I wonder what God could use us to do, church, if all of us suddenly cease to care what people who don't believe think of us. What if our faith in Christ could be set free from the constraints that we've put on it? Oh no, I'm not going to say amen in church. That's not proper. Who said? The ancient Israelites did it. They sang it. Jesus said amen in worship. I'm not going to lift my hands in worship. Preacher, it's wrong. Jesus danced in the synagogue. A bunch of little children danced in the temple and then Pharisees came and said, Jesus, there's no dancing in the temple. They were Baptists. Um, man, that's being recorded and put on the internet too. I have Baptist friends. I'm going to tell them I love y'all. Um, you know what Jesus said to them? He said, I will not make them quit. That's what He said to them. All they were doing was showing their exuberant love for God. And Jesus wasn't going to stop that. My favorite painting of Jesus is one that somebody gave me. It shows Jesus dancing in the synagogue with women, men, and children. It's an awesome painting. I believe with all my heart that that happened. I believe that Jesus was not some stick in the mud who was afraid of what people thought of him. I believe Jesus wore his faith on his sleeve. And that's why we love Him. Now, I'm not talking about dancing in church. That's what the kind of nonsense this text normally gets used for. What I'm talking about is dancing in your workplace, at the grocery store, wherever you go, being willing to live before God with joy. Listen, aren't you tired of hearing Christians complain about how hard the Christian life is? You know, when I wasn't a Christian, I ran around and drank and had fun, and now I just go to church. It's pathetic. The reason we feel that way is because we allow our faith to be encumbered by stuff that doesn't matter. We're afraid of what somebody will think of us if we say, I love Jesus. If we pray at work. If we read our Bible in the break room. If we say to someone, I love Christ. What if our faith was unencumbered by what other people tell us being a Christian should look like? What if we were set free from that? What if my faith and your faith could be set free from our pride I desire not to be contemptible, vile, or even worse, to humiliate ourselves in public. David told Michal that he would make himself even more contemptible. That he would be based in his very own eyes. That he would be lowly. Basically what he was saying to her is, My God is so great that I don't care if I humiliate myself when I love Him. What if we were more concerned with, to be, with being faithful to Christ 
than being honored by our neighbors, our co-workers, the world, or even our enemies. Some of you probably already are that way, but I'm not. Every preacher will tell you that they're worried about what their people think of them. What if I was free from that? How much bolder might my preaching be? How much freer might I feel in God's presence? I might would even do that dance again. Dear ones, would we be willing to consent to be more vile? Are we willing to look foolish in this world? Even more, are we willing to look foolish to ourselves? One person has translated David's commitment this way, I will shame myself for the Lord God. I will be lowly in my own eyes. Paul says that we're fools for Christ. Because the world looks at us and thinks we're stupid. And it calls on us to be even more foolish. Are we willing to dance with joy in our lives before God no matter what other people might think? You know that saying, dance like nobody's watching? You ever heard that before? How many of you do that when the house is empty? Yeah. Y'all ain't lifting your hands. Somebody lying in church. What if we weren't afraid to live our life, our faith in open? What if we lived our faith as if nobody was watching? The result would be that those who are watching would see true faith. How might that change their lives? I can tell you a story of how it changed England. 1739. John Wesley was confronted by George Whitfield, one who had studied under him. And George called him and said, I want you to come to Bristol and join me in preaching to the crowds out in the open. Whitfield had started doing what then was called open-air preaching. It was scorned by the church. It was thought to be something that no one should even consider doing. But Whitfield had gone out and done it. And not only that, he invited the right and proper Reverend John Wesley to come and join him. You may not know that John Wesley formed the ministry that you are sitting under today. John Wesley and a group of his friends got together and decided that they didn't care what the other students at Oxford thought of them, that they would get together, they would read their Bibles, they would talk about their lives, and they would search for a deeper experience with Christ, no matter how much people heckled them. And they did heckle them, constantly. But they did it anyway. But even that didn't prepare him for being asked by George Whitfield to go out into the field and preach, to leave the pulpit and go out and speak to people where they were. So John Wesley brought that proposal to the, Wesley, the Methodist Society that he was leading at Fetter Lane. This is an account of the next few days of his life, from his own words. 
My journey was proposed to our society in Fetter Lane, but my brother Charles would scarcely bear the mention of it. Till appealing to the oracles of God, he received these words as spoken to himself and answered not again. Son of man, behold, I take from thee the desire of thine own eyes with a stroke. Yet shalt thou not mourn or weep, neither shall thy tears run down. Our other brethren, however, continuing the dispute without any probability of their coming to one conclusion, we all at length agreed to decide it by lot. They got the dice out. And by that it was determined I should go. Thursday, the 29th of March, 1739. I left London and in the evening expounded to a small company at Basingstoke. Saturday, the 31st. In the evening, I reached Bristol and met Mr. Whitfield there. I could scarcely reckon myself at first to this strange way of preaching in the fields of which he set me an example on Sunday. I had been all my life till very lately so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church. April 1st. In the evening, Mr. Whitfield being gone, I began expounding our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. One pretty remarkable precedent of field preaching. Do you hear that Wesley's heart was convicted by our Lord's own preaching in the field? Though I suppose there were churches at that time also. To a little society which is accustomed to meet once or twice a week in Nicholas Street. A church that met in the street. Monday the 2nd. At four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile. And proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation speaking from a little eminence in a ground adjoining to the city to about 3,000 people. The scripture on which I spoke was this, Is it possible anyone should be ignorant that it is fulfilled in every true minister of Christ? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Sunday the 8th. Just a week later. At 7 in the morning, I preached to about a 1,000 persons at Bristol and afterward to about 1,500 on the top of Hannah Mount in Kingswood. I called to them in the words of the prophet, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. About 5,000 were in the afternoon at Rose Green on the other side of Kingswood, among whom I stood and cried in the name of the Lord, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. I wonder if you heard the movement there. John Wesley began thinking that preaching outside of a pulpit was sin. 
Did you hear that? And someone suggested to him that preaching outside of a pulpit would be a more open use of his faith. Someone convinced him that Jesus was worth him being embarrassed. Someone convinced him that Jesus was worth him being contemptible to other people. Someone convinced him that Jesus was worth being more vile. And Wesley, when he saw what happened when Whitfield went into the streets and preached, decided that he would submit to being more vile. For the sake of the gospel of Christ, he would be scorned and ostracized, because that's what happened. John Wesley went back to Epworth, the church his father preached in for years, and they wouldn't let him in the door. Because he had preached in the field. He had submitted, just like King David, to being vile to those who don't love God. He had been submitted to being vile for the truth, to having an impolite faith, a faith that's not blocked in by the expectations of other people, including his own expectations. Do you know that one historian has credited the Wesley brothers with keeping England from a civil war. Because of the things that were going on in England at this time, the Wesleyan revival, one historian has said, kept England from plunging into the depths of civil strife so deep that it would have resulted in war. John Wesley submitted to be more vile, to not care what others thought of him, to embarrass himself for the gospel, and God used him to save a people from war. What might God use us if we were unafraid of being embarrassed for Christ? What might God do with us if we would be a little more vile? I'm sure you know that much of this society thinks you're stupid for being here today. They think you're wasting your time. You're worshiping something that doesn't exist. How do you feel about that? Is Christ alive? Does Christ deserve you being openly committed to your faith? Bishop Scott Jones says that Wesley simply was embarrassing himself for the glory of the Lord. I wonder if I'm willing to do that. There are many explanations for the decline of the so-called mainline churches in America, one of which we are a part. But dear ones, I am increasingly convinced that our decline is due to our being too concerned for too long with what the world thinks of us. For wanting to be the world's favorite, they don't cause problems. We like the United Methodists. They're quiet. I wonder if if part of our decline isn't because we've invested far too much energy in pleasing our culture in order to preserve our dignity. Having what those outside the faith would call a dignified faith. I want to tell you, dear ones, that a dignified faith is a waste of time. 
It's not the faith that your Lord had. It's not the faith that any of his apostles had. It's not the faith that we read of in the Bible. The faith that we read of in the Bible is a sacrificial faith. It's a faith that is willing to be embarrassed for Christ, to be more vile. I call on us, dear ones, that we might submit to being more vile. That we might not be afraid to let our hearts dance before the Lord, even when we're in public. That we might have an impolite faith that God can use to do unbelievable things. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.